welcome to Risk Roundup. Intelligent autonomous systems are here. Its emerging potential is enabling entirely new capabilities to human environment and ecosystem where direct human control is not physically possible. Now, since the underlying technology of any intelligent autonomous system is capable of adapting to changing conditions, knowledge, and constraints, it is also possible to assign very broad objectives to them. As a result, new ideas and initiatives are emerging rapidly across industries to explore the capability of such autonomous systems. To discuss autonomous systems further, I'm delighted to welcome Nadia Ahmed to Risk Roundup. Dr. Nadia Ahmed to Risk Roundup. Dr. Nadia is a professor in computer science, and she's also a faculty advisor in machine learning at Saddleback College based in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Nadia. We're honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. Wonderful. So uh, before we begin discussion on broadly on the autonomous systems, let me ask you, what research problem are you working on? So I work on energy efficient buildings, so smart, intelligent buildings. Uh, I work on essentially how can we optimize the scheduling of appliances in a way that does not interfere with the comfort of the consumer that lives inside of it and also takes into account weather patterns, uh, how much energy that you may be harvesting on your solar panel, your rooftop solar panel and uh, takes into account if you decide to have any kind of energy harvesting, uh, energy storage device uh, sort of connection in your home, similar to what Tesla proposed with the power wall. So that's been my line of research for the past um, several years. It's been, it's been since 2014. Um, prior to that, I was working in smart meter technology majority of my life my theme has been focused on energy efficiency because energy is a major problem in the united states as is other environmental concerns like climate change and i think that as we progress into the future those are going to be more and more relevant to today's society yes absolutely These, those are at the very core of uh, every nation's economy now when you talk about the smart buildings you talked about that you work, you worked on the smart meters also and uh, mm -hmm. also uh, smart you know buildings and smart energy so are you integrate are you working towards internet of uh, uh, internet of energy yeah so there is this uh, concept of iot within yes. the home where each of your appliances are smart appliances, they talk to each other, and there's a central hub called the Home Energy Management System that takes into account all of the appliance energy patterns, um, human behavior. Actually, the main, the core to my research is that you keep keep it centralized on the consumer because the consumer is really the motivator for what particular appliance is going to be turned on at any given time, the principal motivator for how energy is going to be utilized. Uh, so really understanding human behavior in a very minimally invasive way is really important because people are really concerned about their privacy. Absolutely. So how can you have this IoT connected home that in a sense has to monitor the behavior of the consumer but do so in a way that's non-invasive, um, that 
the consumer can trust and that makes their life convenient. So there is this trade-off of, of convenience and privacy. And I think the reason why, so my particular area of research is in residential demand response. And prior to that, demand response programs that utilities were using were not being very widely welcomed because people are not open to having a company come in, a big company come in and take control of their air conditioning unit, for example. Yes. In the industrial sector, it's not necessarily a problem. Um, they, they're willing to, okay, let's, we want to cut energy costs. We want to work with the utility and they're open to automated demand response programs. But in the residential sector, which accounts for about 22% of energy used, they're not so open to it. So how can we make a fully integrated framework that they can be willing to take on um, that incorporates parts of their life and schedules appliances in a way that they're not even aware of that in the end of the day minimizes their energy consumption bill. Sure. Now, the point that you made that uh, you're keeping the consumer at the center but at right. the same time, we are seeing that we are moving towards decentralized economy. And especially when you talk about the energy systems, when we are trying to, when the consumer is, you know, on its way to becoming the supplier of energy, especially when, you know, with the solar panels on the rooftop and every, every each and every consumer, you know, is going to end up not just producing energy for themselves, but also they will have surplus. So, Yes, you know, many of them will store that for their use, but many of them, you know, in the coming years will also supply that to the grid. So it is not just the demand that we will have to focus on. It's going to be both, you know, demand as well as, you know, supply. And mm -hmm. that is why, you know, the whole energy ecosystem that we are developing is going to be very interesting because it's not, uh, we are moving away from the centralized grid to you know decentralized uh, grid so that you know it's actually very beneficial because then you know no matter if there is any attack terrorist attack or anything you know they cannot take the entire grid down because the grid is not just in one place the grid will be everywhere and they cannot take the you know everybody's system down all at the same time of course they can but it will be much much more difficult so it's going to be very complex you know how we develop these energy system and as we devil move towards automating uh, or creating autonomous system especially for these uh, energy industry if you're talking about you know smart energy it's not only smart grid but smart energy then how what role do you see this autonomous system playing for uh, the energy industry in the coming years well i think there already is to a degree a lot of autonomous in integration that has happened over the years if you think about it, the current energy grid was built like in the 1920s, early you know, earlier in the century. And um, we've been working since computing has improved so much towards increasing the smarts of the smart grid, if you will, both in the generation level, the distribution level, and in the residential level. Now, you are dealing with um, a very conservative industry. Yes. So that's the one thing that that's why the growth hasn't been as fast paced. 
Um, you also have an extreme scarcity of power systems engineers. So uh, there was a period in, I think around the 90s, where power systems engineers were not so much in demand. And as a consequence of that, fewer and fewer people were power systems, operational research engineers. And so a lot of the operations research that occurred happened more in computer science and um, shifted over into this new term machine learning, which is a, a form of operations research. And so you have this kind of interesting dichotomy of people that are bringing in insight from other fields, but they're bringing it in in a relatively conservative industry. And I think that that makes it a little bit difficult um, in, just in general. But um, to answer your question, how can we benefit from making things um, smarter, more connected? I think that we're going to have to because um, cities have to be smarter. We need to integrate IoT uh, to monitor transportation systems. Uh, it's not just transportation, it's power. We're all kind of interconnected. Um, look, look at, for example, now, I think this is a really uh, um, interesting time given the situation with COVID-19. Everybody's working from home. So now what does that mean in terms of the residential demand? The residential demand has increased quite a bit because now people are not away from their homes. Um, so having a more connected home is, is very relevant right now, um, not only in terms of your appliances and, and making your home energy efficient, but creating home office spaces, um, being connected uh, in a way that you can still maintain the pace of work life. Um, we now have new threats. We now have, um, as, as the climate is increasing, you know, the heat, the temperature is increasing. We're having climate change. Climate change is something we can no longer deny. It's here. Um, it's creating kind of a an environment where we're we're in territory we've never encountered before. We have new bacteria, new viruses. Animals are are moving, shifting. There's this state of flux that's going on in the world, and it's going to change what homeostasis means for us. As a, as a kind of a species, as a, as a you know, for the entire world. And having information, having data is gonna be essential because from that data, we can make inferences as to what sort of decisions that we need to take. And having um, systems, sensory systems that take that information in, um, do the number crunching for us and, you know, aid us with our decisions are going to be uh, extremely important. So I think the field of autonomous systems is only going to grow. Um, we have a lot to work on. Uh, as of now, there's this whole um, movement. So I work a lot in machine learning. And in machine learning, there's a lot of applications in robotics. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of smarts that can be built in to a lot of these devices. And that's kind of like where I, I stand. And I think that there's going to be significant growth because there's a difference between doing machine learning um, in simulation and making decisions based in simulations and a huge leap between that 
and going into the realm of, okay, now I'm creating an autonomous vehicle that now has to drive in, um, in the environment where there's pedestrians, there's cyclists, there's, you know, there's traffic, uh, there might be an event going on at a particular location. Um, there might be, it might be summertime, there might be a power outage, you know, there's like all sorts of uh, variables that you need to take into account. And the more connected we are, uh, and the more information that's out there, I think that that's going to help um, human beings, but more importantly, uh, autonomous systems. So, so the whole idea of autonomous systems is really to um, not have to, is to basically make our lives easier. Absolutely. There are going to be decisions that we as human beings want to be the primary um, sort of stimulus for, but there are also decisions that happen kind of on a day-to-day -day basis that um, we could benefit from having a, a machine do for us yes, because it might, be, it might be something very, very trivial that we don't want to deal with. So we mm -hmm. want to save our mental capacity for something that might be more important. So I think having a reliance on those systems, it, it's already today. I mean, we have Siri, we have all sorts of, of devices that we use to assist us so i think it's just just going to grow yes it will grow there is no doubt about that and the uh, all different uh, variables that you mentioned all different industries like you know if you talk about the smart energy energy industry or home industry you know smart homes or smart enterprises or smart you know vehicles or smart cities they all are you know going to be connected and for each of them there's so much data that's going to be generated and there's so many decisions that we need to be taken we humans it is not possible for our you know processing power to process that much information that rapidly mm -hmm. so yes autonomous systems are going to be absolutely essential and uh, fundamental as we try you know to develop all this uh, you know, a whole new ecosystem, you know, that revolves around the autonomy. So if you are visualizing, I mean, you are a developer, you are developing solutions, you know, autonomous solutions. So as a developer, if you are visualizing how this entire autonomous ecosystem will look like, if we are thinking from a perspective of, you know, uh, everything that revolves in not only cyberspace, but also geospace, like, you know, what happens on the roads, what happens uh, in the, you know, uh, homes or enterprises or what happens in aqua space, like, you know, in the water and what happens in space, you know, all these uh, cyberspace, aqua space, geospace space, everything is connected. So as we visualize the nature of the autonomous systems, that we will need to develop in the coming years because uh, there is not a single initiative that would just, you know, be focused on only in one area. You know, internet uh, connected computers has connected everything, you know, aquaspace, geospace, cyberspace to space. So even for internet, you know, we everything is connected. So as you visualize all these autonomous systems that we will need to define and then design and develop, how do you see this autonomy requirement evolving in the coming years? And how do you see the development, you know, variables or development play, players, you know, do you think everybody is working in silo or is there a need for collective vision or collective, you know, at least brainstorming is required so that we develop the right pieces of all these autonomy that is around us? 
So I think there is definitely a move towards collective vision because I can benefit from the domain knowledge of somebody else. I think that's always the case. You, you need to have um, a kind of a collective a cohort, if you will, of people that you um, can work with for any particular problem. You also need to be very versatile because the problem parameters are going to change quite a bit. So having the knowledge of implementing a system is not, you know, is not the same as having knowledge of a system. Uh, for example, COVID-19, if I had to model the spread of the disease, I would, I would go and I would consult biologists, I'd con consult medical doctors, I would consult mathematicians, statisticians, there'd be a lot of people that you would need to consult that have their own expertise and very individual um, research goals that are going to be united for one common application. So I think it's extremely important to not be siloed at all. I think that that's going to be to your disadvantage at the end of the day. Um, and that you really think of a, attacking a problem on really a global level. So I actually do talk to um, other academics who are not in my school or not not in my area that I would trust and, and consult for any particular problem. And I think that being open to that is really important um, for to address today's problems. You just, you need domain knowledge. You need to have somebody who has highly specific domain knowledge to then take their ideas and apply it towards something. And it's not going to be perfect. I think that that's something else that people need to look at. The, the best problems to solve are really the simplest problems. If you can solve a simpler, simple problem, if you can dilute a problem down to something very simple, I think that you can build from there. And to get there takes a lot of knowledge. Yes, yes, definitely. There's, there's a need for a lot of knowledge, a lot of collaboration and cooperation because uh, these problems are so big for any one, you know, individual or organization or country to solve on its own. Yes, of course, you know, eventually, even if one country wants to do it on its own, eventually they'll be able to do it. But the amount of time that it will require to solve that problem, you know, we can minimize that and we can shorten that by everybody working together. But at the same time, there's also this competition going on, you know, especially in the, if you look at the sectors like AI and autonomous systems, there's a huge competition, especially between India and China, I mean, between US and China. The, these two countries are competing, you know, very aggressively and a uh, lot of, you know, there is a lot of distrust between you know researchers and developers and there is a lot of uh, not sharing of knowledge and uh, information has stopped i mean as we see in covid id uh, covid 19 also we have we still do not have you know enough information about what actually happened in wuhan china has not shared that information so there is a lot that is you know going on uh, in geopolitics especially with the emerging technologies and uh, if you look at the autonomous systems i mean there are automatic systems and there are, there are autonomous systems and automate automation has happened you know for many many years but autonomous systems that we are trying to develop and they require you know understanding of uh, how these systems that we are developing will operate or you know in unpredictable environments because not everything we can you know input into the 
you know information because we don't know everything that could happen you know as the these systems go through you know unpredictable environments like for example smart cars we don't know what kind of obstacles or uh, situations the smart cars are going to uh, come across so for every situation how the car should you know take a decision those things you know not everything is predictable so when you are trying to develop solutions for these unpredictable environments and and developing a autonomous system for such unpredictable environments irrespective of whether that is a solution for cyberspace in security area or whether it's a smart car or whether it's a uh, you know smart city or uh, you know smart uavs you know or any kind of uh, drone you know any kind of uh, autonomous system that we are trying to develop so how do you define design and test these you know unpredictable environments as you design and develop these autonomous systems so the first step that you usually take when you're designing any kind of system is that you do you run in simulation you run in simulation and you try to take into account uh, certain variables. So I tend to use probabilistic models for that. Um, so there's different techniques that you can use within machine learning. You can use uh, different kinds of learning. Uh, the kind of bottom line is that when you initially come up with a concept, you need some prior knowledge. And I think that's been kind of the limiting fa factor for a lot of work. Uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to generalize too much, but essentially um, for initial ideas, for initial prototyping, there is a reliance on data. And having data requires that you have the trust in that data, that it not be quote unquote biased, right? Now, from experience, we've seen that there is actually bias in data. Uh, and a really good example of this is, for example, um, there. So I had a, a colleague of mine working on on um, galaxies and kind of mitigating the bias that's in the classification of galaxies. So we tend, as human beings, to be right-handed. And not only that, but in the past, being right-handed versus left-handed was associated with, um, you know, being better than something. So someone was more religious and more pure, more holy, that was right-handed versus left-handed. And so um, my colleague did this work and he found that there was an inherent bias in the way that people were characterizing galaxies, that people tended to characterize the chirality of, of galaxies as being right-handed because they were had a bias towards being right-handed. So if you design a system on information on that's inherently biased, you're essentially creating a flawed system and then you release it out into the world and you have this training period where you're, you're, you're you utilizing this sort of false information and it's out there in the world making decisions based on false information. In fact, this was one of the things we saw early on. Uh, I think there was a Microsoft bot chat bot that they made that turned yeah. out to be extremely racist, yeah. you know, things like that. Like it learns from bad data and um, having kind of more 
like a wide variety of modeling approaches, I think is, is one way to, to solve that problem, um, to reset calibration points. So um, I'm kind of in favor, but there's a big leap. There's a big leap between, so I work primarily in reinforcement learning. That Those are the techniques that I use in reinforcement learning kind of utilizes information that it's gathering uh, in kind of as the system progresses to update its current model of the world. And I think having systems like that incorporate sort of feedback mechanisms, you can see this in kind of recurrent neural networks as well, is going to be more and more important. Um, but then there is this issue of, you know, how do we put that in the real world? Because we've been modeling and doing all these things in simulation, um, but putting it in the real world is a whole different ball game. And I think that that just comes with experience. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to answer because again, it depends on the application. It depends on what it is you're trying to design. Um, there are trade-offs that you have to make in any sort of project. Um, what do you trade off um, to meet a particular specification or end goal? Like, do you care for precision? Do you care for, um, you know, some other outcome? So you, those, those are things that need to be weighed by um, kind of your goals. What, what are, do you have in mind for a particular system? I think that that's probably the most important step is when you're initially creating a autonomous system is, okay, what is my goal state? What is the thing that I want to regulate? What is the, and what what factors are important? What factors can I trade off? And and that's a hard decision. That in and of itself is inherently biased. So you could you could argue that all systems are biased, but then you know you want to create systems that will um, alleviate some of the stress in people's lives to give them more time to do things that are more enjoyable. So. I, 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 I agree with you. I, I, I think it's how we look at things. Even there is one single fact, but two individuals can you know, look at it from a very different perspective. Yeah. They may form different opinions. So uh, this is inherent nature. You know, you know, even quantum physics, you know, I think has come out when saying that, you know, there is uh, everything, you know, even uh, every particle, you know, we, even though, you know, we think it is like this, uh, how it is viewed and it's how, you know, the different uh, it's entirely, you know, and especially when we are as humans, you know, it is very, very complex, you know, how we evaluate things. So as you, as a developer, as you define all these variables and as you work in reinforcement learning, what problems you face the most? What are the complex challenges for developers like you who are trying to, you know, come develop some, you know, systems or advance the machine learning, you know, uh, so that, you know, we can develop better systems and uh, we can uh, solve bigger problems. What complex problems you are facing that needs to be solved for uh, us to, you know, take a step forward? I think one thing is scalability. Again, taking something that you've created in your uh, toy world of simulation mm -hmm. and utilize it in a real world system. So I think that leap from implementing it, implementing the software framework for it in simulation versus uh, actually implementing it into a physical prototype is quite challenging. Mm -hmm. um, 
scalability also in terms of um, the amount of, like we mentioned earlier, the amount of variables that you may have taken into account in your sort of conceptual framework in simulation is going to be different than reality. Maybe those variables have a larger or smaller probability of occurring than you actually took into account originally. Yeah. So things like that can be very tricky. Um, I think that's one of the, the, main, the main issues for, for reinforcement learning in applied systems. I think that's why there's been such great success with neural networks and other approaches um, to sort of in vivo prototyped systems is because they don't face that sort of leap that you have to make. So mm -hmm. I think that, that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this particular area. And there is work being done. There's, there's a lot of work being done out of Stanford um, and in uh, Berkeley where they're, they're incorporating um, different modalities of reinforcement learning, imitation learning, different kinds of thing, forms of research into um, a laundry folding robot or into uh, other kind of home robots uh, to assist for assistive technologies. So uh, there is a lot of research, a lot of work being done, but again, they're being done in very isolated cases. They're being done for very, very simple, simple tasks. Yes. And they've been proven and shown to be very successful in those very simple tasks. But how can you now scale that up so that your agent, your home robot, your personal assistant can do a variety of tasks besides picking up an object and placing it somewhere? Yes, very true. Now, you, you made an important point that, you know, what variables we define the, that would, you know, be based on, you know, what understanding we have at that point and uh, all the systems will operate based on that. But let's say, you know, we define a system, design a system uh, at this point and we have defined certain variables, but then, uh, and we deploy it and, you know, in the field to, and we, in operational and then we realize that there is an important variable missing that we need to incorporate for the you know system to be performing uh, optimally or for us to get the results that we are hoping for these any of these systems are do you design it in a way that they are just closed that we cannot change the variables or add the variables or is it you know open system that if we come across you know a new idea or a new variable that needs to be incorporated into the system we designed that we will be while it is operational we can you know change that and we can uh, make those changes is it possible in the systems that you are developing to make the changes in real time so the the sort of systems that are being developed in an academic atmosphere are significantly different than what they, they do in industry. So in industry, um, you, you would have to make your, uh, whatever it is, your product, your product, your agent, you'd have to make that extremely versatile and you'd have to follow uh, basic software engineering design principles to um, allow for that product to receive updates, to get updated, to improve. Um, you know, you, you might have an initial beta version and then 
then you're going to have different versions that are going to roll out and you can install firmware or updates and, and that kind of stuff in, in an industry standpoint. Um, in an academic standpoint, uh, you're dealing with a very uh, specific problem. Um, typically, the problem is usually um, specified by the person that's interested in funding <laughs> that problem. Yeah. Uh, so your your source of funding kind of allow and um, changes the focus of your project to to what their goals are and. Um, it has to align with your goals essentially as a researcher. So it's a very, very different set of um, environments you're dealing with in that sort of situation. You're not interested in pushing out a product and um, updating the product and making it better and having more bells and whistles to, to make some kind of bottom line cash flow. You're interested in sort of a proof of concept. How can we help um, society? So uh, I was, essentially um, backed by um, the energy, right? The Department of Energy. So they're interested in this work. Um, so they're interested in a very energy efficient sort of perspective, it's creating agents that can improve energy efficiency, that can improve um, smart grid technology. And so that's where residential demand response becomes a natural application for machine learning for autonomous control systems in that perspective. Um, in industry, you have to have something that can change that's fast paced. So in order to design something like that, you need to not only um, come up with an initial idea, an initial prototype, you also have to take into account what it is that your um, customer wants. And then how to apply those software design um, principles. How can we make our product adaptive? How can we update it? What kind of um, methods should I use? What kind of agile methods should I use? And uh, water flow or, or any of those kind of design modalities that they use. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to teach software engineering a while ago, so I'm probably am butchering a lot of the terminology. <laughs> but you have to you have to use um, sort of those principles if you're you're looking at it from the side of of industry. Yes, no, absolutely. I, I hear you on that because you know I'm thinking from security perspective because all these autonomous <laughs> systems that we define, design, and you know deploy in the field. Uh, what if you know suddenly? I mean, there we are fundamentally shifting the responsibility from our decision making to and let the machines you know take control and let let them take decisions and what if you know suddenly you know it decides to not do what we have defined them to do and go off you know off track and we have to shut off those systems then you know security comes in right and how are we going to shut off those systems that is the you know holy grail of the question that you know everybody is thinking about that what if autonomous systems you know it just goes off track and uh, we have no way of controlling then how do we that's why everyone i talk to you know i ask them is there a backdoor you are keeping is there a way you are still keeping control that we can modify the behavior of these systems 
even if we you know uh, deploy them in the field so that we will have some control even if we are not take actively you know doing anything uh, to control the system but if we need to we can take control of the system so that's what i'm i would like to ask you also because you know because you are developing these systems that involves the smart energy and smart homes and uh, uh, you know all these uh, smart cars probably you are working on and any of the initiatives you are working on that if we need to Uh, take control at some point will you be able to uh, i think that that's uh the main driver for a lot of systems is that you want to and and the same for my system you want the consumer to be in the loop the consumer is part of the design of your of your system so they need to have overriding power at the end of the day and you see this with tesla with their car they their the autonomous capabilities of their car can be overridden by the driver at any given time and that's kind of been the the movement of where autonomous vehicles have gone if you've noticed the design of the vehicles uh haven't really changed the proposed designs still have the driver in the driver's seat and the passenger now the driver is not going to take on that much of an active role but if they need to they can essentially override the system yes. for um my smart home the consumer is constantly giving feedback um as to their comfort level and this can be in the form of a dial maybe they don't like the current settings that the energy management system is on they're annoyed of it they're going to turn some dial and that dial is now going to change um the probabilistic models that the energy management system is going to utilize in the future so um there is this concept of how can we aut automatically gain sensory information and make decisions um the system on its own but also include the consumer as part of this and i think that that's where a lot of our autonomous systems are heading is that the, the human being is still um the main component of the design so they're still providing feedback and then that feedback gets used as another data point that you can then push into your model and update your model parameters so um that's really that's really essential here we don't want to have like a robot apocalypse where they're all just taking over and they just go and they're off calibration and they just kind mm -hmm. of go on their own that's that's yeah. far from happening and and no. that was actually <laughs> no, we don't want that. we want the robots do right now if you are looking at it you know in this covid-19 uh, you know shutdown where nobody can come clean your homes or cook for you or you know do laundry or uh, yard work i think we do need robots you know if uh, do you see any development happening in those home robots uh, that can take over uh, you know the day to day you know task for uh, Yeah so um most of the work for homework home home robots excuse me um is being done in um Berkeley and um in Stanford and a lot of those home robots they like I mentioned earlier they do a very specific task. Yes. So right now they can only do maybe one task. You you can get it by a really expensive robot and it can fold your laundry uh it can put the dishes away for you but it will do only that one task it won't feed your cat it you know it won't cook for you so there's a lot of work that needs to be that done in that aspect now i think in medicine robotics has been really big 
you still have the doctor, the healthcare professional in the loop because that's extremely important. So you've seen, uh, we've seen advances in, um, in robotic surgery now because a lot of healthcare workers are unfortunately getting sick. Um, there is a, you know, there's a need for how can we do, um, how can we automate healthcare and to what degree can we automate healthcare? And even in those environments, you'll see a robot go into a patient room and there is a, you know, they're basically in a, in a video chat conference call with a healthcare person, a healthcare, like a doctor or a registered nurse. And so having that sort of situation is really important. Now, I think the the thing that's really um, difficult in the situation now is the lack of information. And um, there is information that's out there that's provided by the CDC. There's information, there's updates that are happening on a daily basis, but it's not enough information to make inferences on um, the level of contagion in a particular area, um, high-risk individuals. It, th there's a lot that needs to be done, and, and that's not really anybody's fault. That's really because this is we're dealing with a new a new sort of crisis. Um, COVID nineteen relies on PCR uh, testing, and that kind of testing takes a long time to complete. Um, so there's also the lack of availability of testing of resources, and so. In this sort of, you know, I I feel like I want I want to help. You know, you you want to help as much as you can the cause, but at the end of the day, it's the healthcare workers that are really doing all the work. So even the coolest machine learning tricks, um, the coolest robots, and none none of that is going to really be available to address this current problem yes. uh, in time. So at the end of the day, you get kind of shaken up by all this. And yeah, there's really exciting emerging technology that's going on. But um, given the current situation, it's really the, the, the most simplest problems, right? Is like how, how do you address the simplest problem of supply? How can you provide, you know, um, protective gear for medical staff? How can you roll that out quickly? And, and a lot of it, you know, the... the um, Kind of the the obstacles that we're facing are a lot of you know politics, um, the market, economy, things that people have invested in before. There's actually and and there's no way to foresee what could have um, happened. I mean, there's always scenarios that you think of um, pandemics or something that were usually very common before um, the invention of modern medicine. And again, now I'm like trekking into a realm that I don't have any expertise in, but I think that at the end of the day, yeah, it's going to be more important. Will it address today's problems? Probably not. Probably not. And I, I, hear, you that. I hear you on that because yeah. the way we have designed our systems, I would say that we are not only facing pandemics of COVID-19, we are also facing a pandemic of China dependency because everything, everything you know, if you talk about the mask or ventilators or everything was manufactured in China and China comes to a standstill, we all come to a standstill because, you know, the supply chain, the entire supply chain depends on manufacturing in China. 
So we don't manufacture uh, gloves. We don't manufacture our uh, mask. We don't manufacture ventilators. So if we are not manufacturing any of our basic needs, basic needs to protect even our healthcare workers, and we depend on another country that is hit, you know, where the outbreak emerged. So it is not only the risk of, you know, getting the virus on, if, even if let's say we get try to get the uh, products from them and we to continue getting from them, we don't know if the products that are coming to us are not already not already infected by the virus because the workers, the, this is, you know, a pandemic. It was a broad epidemic in China before we, you know, it happened in other countries. So we have a dual, you know, risk here. You know, if we get these products from them, whether it is uh, coming, you know, in sterile condition, whether the virus is in that or whether, you know, we can depend on them so there are many many you know structural changes needs to be there in the system so yes like you said you know we may not be able to do everything that we want to with this current crisis but we will have an opportunity and we should have an opportunity to define resilient systems so in future if this happens and especially you know this is a natural pandemic we very likely may will you know uh, come across in our lifetime another man-made pandemic because bio bioweapons you know are going to be easy to develop you know with the advances in technologies that we have so we will need to be prepared so we will have to create resilient systems and yes the point you made about the healthcare workers you know they are being hit you know with the viruses and i was thinking about it what actually you know they are you know mostly focusing their time on testing and you know keeping the patients comfortable by giving them oxygen supply because most of the problems are about the breathing right so everybody's lungs are collapsing so all that can be trained robots can take over that you know if we train them you know if we have robots ready then they can you know make sure testing they can do they can make sure that they also you know uh, do the oxygen supply you know the ventilators uh, and mask and all that all those tasks the ones that i'm seeing i think they can be automated giving medications and all so I, I think we will have an opportunity to develop very resilient systems, uh, you know, once we are past this, once we survive this, and I'm sure we are going to survive this. And there are a lot of people working on this, but uh, yes, we have to develop better resilient systems. And this system of dependency, the whole world's dependency on China to get their masks, to get their ventilators, to get their gloves is a very stupid system. We cannot depend on one country to get all of our supplies. The entire world's supply cannot depend on one country's manufacturing. So yes, we will need to you know, decentralize manufacturing. We will have to use 3D printing, digital additive manufacturing, you know, all these technologies we'll have to use. We'll have to come up that we can quickly you know, print the mask that we need. We can quickly print the gloves that we need. We can quickly print the ventilators that we need. We'll have to use the technologies that we have and machine learning can, you know, help us so much these ai you know we will be able to predict the outbreak right when it happens so we will you know be able to develop very good systems that can give us alert global alert that there is an outbreak happening in certain area so we quickly contain that area so we the entire world doesn't have to go through that but having said that we still have to work towards that what would we like to tell our global viewers and listeners especially your research where you are looking for cooperation or where you are trying to inspire students to do something you know uh, that you know bigger than you know themselves or bigger than you know profits but to you know contribute towards the future of the humanity what would you like to tell them so 
Well, I actually want to go back to what you were mentioning earlier. I, I don't have any political views or uh, any sort of particular thing that I want to look at, but I do want to mention um, that I China has actually made a lot of their data available and they've also contributed to the situation in Italy. So I don't think it's fair to blame to blame any particular country for the current situation. I don't think that anyone could have for you know, I mean it's a pandemic. Everybody's dealing with it. The whole world is dealing with it. So I think that what we're seeing right now is actually really beautiful because you have groups like helpful engineering, you have groups that are working kind of across the country lines across nations to kind of come up with solutions that are making their 3D printing, um, like their files available that are making a lot of contributions to open source. So, and, and those are not necessarily, you know, only one group versus the other groups. I don't want people to think that they should be paranoid about, you know, geopolitics as they stand. There's actually a lot of collaboration that's happening between academics um, and those academics are from China as well. A lot of doctors have, there's been a lot of papers that have been published out of China. They were the first to do the DNA sequencing for the coronavirus. So I don't think that we need to blame any particular country for the situation. I think um, what is happening is really unfortunate, but it's also bringing out, um, there, there's positives that are coming out of it. There are people that are working uh, to such a high degree of collaboration. They're working around the clock and they're volunteering their time. You have developers, you have um, chemical engineers, you have um, doctors, you have medical workers, you have all sorts of people that are working around the clock to kind of not only assist directly with COVID-19, but assist in how life has changed for us. So the IT professionals, the per people that are working on um, server systems to accommodate our, our talk, our Zoom meetings, our Google Hangouts, um, people who are being resilient to try to teach classes online now, especially classes that are really difficult to teach online. A physiology lab online, had organic chemistry lab online. So I think that um, instead of, you know, trying to uh, investigate and, and put the blame on any particular policy or any particular uh, situation is really not um, productive. And I think that, that students, how they can contribute um, and how the future can contribute is to, to really stay informed um, stay concerned and just work really hard. I think that um, staying informed and being concerned, you're always going to be interested in the benefit of other people, in the benefit of yourself. I think that that's really important that you you think about uh, a global whole as opposed to yourself. Um, and I think that you know, even in terms of research you have a lot to benefit when you're working in a collaborative environment with other professors and other people from um, other places who have different perspectives and domain knowledge than you do just by yourself. So I think um, 
those goals are really important. I think also um, right now, instead of doing nothing at home, you have an opportunity to learn an essential skill. Yes. And I think that um, we're not awarded opportunities like this. You know, it's 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 a really un it's unfortunate because there are people that are suffering. There are people that are high risk. I have family members that are high risk that they need to stay at home confined. I can't really interact with them, um, and it's hard. But it's also a really unique opportunity to learn a new thing, to learn programming, pick up a programming language, take a machine learning class, go take a class on Udemy. There's a lot of open platforms that you can use to educate yourself. Not only that, but now that education is moving online, you have really great institutions that are offering their courses. Now, MIT, Stanford, they all have open courseware, but now you're getting even more open courseware. Take advantage of that. That's a really, you know, a great opportunity. Um, now, I know that's really difficult. Not everyone has access to internet. There's a lot of people that rely on their part-time job that they no longer have because of COVID-19. So, um, you know, being resourceful in others is really important. But yes. I think just making sure that you're interested, that you're concerned, that you're engaged, I think that that's going to be what makes well, it makes my life fulfilling. Yes. So, Hopefully that'll make other people's lives fulfilling as well. Absolutely, absolutely. This is a, while this is a time of great difficulty and a lot of challenges are in front of us, it is also a great time to bring the best out in each one of us. And like you yeah. said, you know, we have to collaborate and we have to make sure we come up with effective solutions so we can put this crisis behind us. So thank you so right. much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on autonomous systems and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today. And as a result, this Risk Roundup dialogue has been of service. We thank you for that. So Risk Roundup is a strategic security risk research platform and community. And our strategic security community and ecosystem is the first and only cross-disciplinary and collective community that is made of top scientists, security professionals, uh, researchers, uh, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, policymakers, and academic institutions from across nations collaborating to research, review, rate, and report the strategic security risk facing the future of the humanity. Add your voice to risk groups. And until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.